Beloveds, welcome back to The Word is Resistance, the podcast where we're exploring what our Christian sacred texts have to teach us about living, surviving, even thriving in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression, the times in which we are living today. What do our sacred stories have to teach us as white folks about our role in resistance, in showing up, in liberation? What wisdom is there for us as white Christians in these troubled, violent times of pandemics and war and racial capitalism, and also the beauty of resistance? I'm Reverend Ann Dunlap, pronouns she, her, hers. I'm a United Church of Christ minister, and I'm the faith organizing coordinator for Showing Up for Racial Justice, or SURGE. I live in the place currently called Buffalo, New York, here in the homelands of the Haudenosaunee peoples. This podcast is a project of Surge Faith and is particularly designed for white Christians. White Christians talking to other white Christians about race and white supremacy. We believe white Christians like us, like me, have a responsibility to commit ourselves to resisting white supremacy, to speaking up and showing up and disrupting white supremacy where we find it, including in our own Christian tradition. And we do this work remembering we are building up a new world. This live recording of Dr. Vincent Harding's Song for the Freedom Movement is of a multiracial movement choir practice in Denver, Colorado in December 2014, being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Free Harding family for letting us use the song for this podcast. The word is resistance. It's good to be with y'all again. We had our first ever podcast meetup last week, and it was so good to actually meet some of you in virtual person and hear your stories about what the podcast means to you. Some of you found us for the first time because of the meetup, and we're so glad you're here. So welcome. Welcome back. We're grateful for each one of you sharing this space with us each week. Another exciting bit of news is... As I'm working on this episode, we are sitting at 99,910 listens all time. So by the time you are listening to this, we'll have rolled over the odometer to over 100,000 total listens over these five years, which I just, I just find that incredible. And maybe you, yes, you are the one who puts us over the top this week. So thank you. Given the state of the world these days, I think it's important to notice the good things too, like spaces for building community and the impact of good and hard work, of bulbs doing what they are supposed to do and bursting up through the cold earth, the care of so many, the care that so many insist on for one another, even while our hearts ache beyond our capacity to hold the grief. So let's hold on to those good things as we move through Lent. Yes, I said hold on to the good things during Lent. And hold on to the good things as we dive into this week's text, which brings its own challenges for us. Here's the text we're going to focus on from Luke's Gospel. This is Luke chapter 13, verses 31 to 35. At that very hour... Some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. 
Jesus said to them, go and tell that fox for me. Listen, I am casting out demons and performing cures today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I finish my work. Yet today, tomorrow, and the next day, I must be on my way. Because it is impossible for a prophet to be killed outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing? See, your house is left to you. And I tell you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. is resistance for a while. You know we have a commitment at Surge and on this podcast to dismantle anti-Semitism as part of our work to dismantle white supremacy. We push against anti-Semitic readings of the Bible in almost every episode, and sometimes whole episodes will take that on explicitly. And this reading from Luke and its positioning at the near beginning of Lent offers us that opportunity. If you were at our meetup, some of this may sound familiar as it's part of what I shared that evening, but as I promised, I'm going deeper. A A few weeks ago, a few weeks ago, I was talking with a Jewish colleague, April Rosenblum, who said, when Christians celebrate, Jews suffer. What we mean here is what she meant, and and as we talked, what, what we mean here is the theological celebration of Christians at Christmas, at Easter, and other liturgical times, the celebration of the triumph of Christianity over, well, the world, over evil, over sin, over, yes, Judaism. This theological celebration has certainly been true historically, and we talked about the pattern in Europe of the rise in pogroms and other forms of Christian violence against Jews during Lent, and particularly during Holy Week and Easter. However, I noticed that she used the present tense, and it made me think. When Christians celebrate, Jews suffer. This pattern is true today, and no less true in liberal progressive Christian churches. We are all still telling the same story, which is the that the gospel story is Jesus against the Jews, Jesus against Judaism, or at a minimum, Jesus against the Pharisees, which isn't really better because in our Christian imagination, Pharisees are a stand-in for Jews and Judaism anyway. For progressives, we talk about it like Jesus freeing Jewish women from patriarchy, or Jesus breaking restrictive Jewish purity laws, or Jesus being about justice while the Pharisees are nitpicking over Sabbath laws, or Jesus caring about the poor and marginalized with the implication that Judaism does not. Even when we're clear as progressives that Rome killed Jesus, not quote-unquote the Jews, we are still often blaming the Jews, quote-unquote, for getting in the way of Jesus' work. As Dr. Amy Jill Levine points out in her work, All of those things that I just named, 
are inventions by Christians. They are made-up untruths, slanders, she says, about a beautiful, complex religious tradition. These inventions serve to excuse the power we Christians hold in the world. They enforce anti-Semitism, including how it exists structurally, and prevent us from a clear understanding of both the biblical text and how to understand our own current political situation. It's not enough to simply affirm that Jesus and Paul were Jewish, or to talk about the Christian-Jewish split as a messy divorce that we only hear one side about, or to change, quote-unquote, the Jews to religious authorities, and so think we've avoided the problem or have corrected centuries of embedded messaging and theology. Without a very clear power analysis, both of the text and their historical context, we are limited in what our interpretation can do to actually counter anti-Semitism in ways that can change systems and structures and even our theologies. Lent is a particularly challenging time because historically and today, Christianity highlights even more than usual the conflict surrounding Jesus in our storytelling, with the lectionary editors often slicing up bits of the narratives that certainly make it sound like the primary conflict is between Jesus and Judaism. That conflictual liturgical storytelling builds and builds through Lent into Holy Week and Jesus' execution. The lectionary readings this year Both the Gospels and Paul's writings are no exception. This year, the focus is on Luke, who often gets let off the hook when we talk about anti-Semitism in the Bible. We're usually focusing on John or Matthew or Paul. However, I think Luke in some ways is even worse, because Luke, whoever the author was, was clearly not Jewish. He's a Gentile, a Roman citizen, who's writing about Jesus and the early church in Acts at least two generations after the event he describes, if not more. And as my New Testament professor told us, it's pretty clear he's never even set foot in Judea, much less Jerusalem. He is a Gentile writing to a Gentile audience to make the Jesus movement palatable for Gentiles, for Romans. Luke is, I think, someone who as a Gentile didn't understand the power analysis of the stories he was working from, nor the experience of Judeans and Galileans under Roman oppression. Thus you end up with the Jews, in particular the Pharisees, not understanding Jesus, but the Roman citizens or collaborators, such as tax collectors, being much more open. Sure, Romans throw Paul in jail a few times in Acts, but the Roman jailers get converted. Herod and the Roman leaders are seen as reasonable, and it is the Jewish leaders who are seen as murderous. Paul, the Gentile converter, is the hero, while the community struggling under Roman oppression in Judea and Jerusalem become nearly invisible, their leader Peter seen as wrong until he converts to being okay with converting Gentiles. Paul isn't even executed by Rome when Luke's narrative concludes. What we see in Luke is the well-meaning, good-intentioned ally to a movement whose power analysis, or lack of it, flattens and invisibilizes the role of Rome's oppression in this story. It's kind of like if a white northerner were telling the story of the Southern Freedom Movement to invite white people to support it, 
but had never been there and focused on tactical disagreements in the black church rather than how government, police, and the Klan worked hand-in-hand to violently repress the movement and attributed movement wins to LBJ's good intentions rather than the years of black-led organizing of thousands of folks on the ground. What Luke ends up doing here is contributing gears and screws and bolts to the machinery that will become anti-Semitism, how it functions to deflect our attention away from the actual power holders to blame Jews for the troubles of the world. That's the power analysis of Rome's Christianity, deflecting our attention away from Rome and telling lies about Jews and Judaism. That's the power analysis anti-Semitism relies on to this day. So I am telling you, the power analysis we need is that the gospel stories are not about Jesus against the Jews, but about the Jewish people, including Jesus, against Roman oppression. Most of the New Testament is the story of Jewish resistance, including resistance through Jewish religious practice and including ways in which the Jewish community doesn't always agree about what that resistance should look like, or if there should be resistance at all. Very human, and very messy, and very much like us today. As I've said many times on the podcast, as Christianity more and more became the religion of Romans, and eventually of the conquering Roman Empire, that story of Jewish resistance against Roman oppression, that story had to be shut down, and turn into something else. And that story, a story of good guys celebrating victory over bad guys, a story of individual piety and the disposability of the perceived unpious, a story of a humanity so depraved we all cheered the execution of our brother, and that that execution, and accepting its necessity through the conversion of our sinful individual selves, was the only way to get God to love us. That story has done immense, immense amounts of harm, including everything we're trying to dismantle about white supremacy. Not only race, but also class and capitalism, gender, relationship to land, everything. So we as white Christians committed to collective liberation have a mutual interest in fighting anti-Semitism. We have a stake in correcting our power analysis, watching always for that deflection that attempt by the dominant tradition to take our eyes off Rome. So where does that leave us? with this week's gospel reading. Let's hear it again because I've said a lot since the beginning of this. Again, this is Luke 13, 31 to 35. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here for Herod wants to kill you. Jesus said to them, go and tell that fox for me, listen, I am casting out demons and performing cures today and tomorrow, and on the third day I finish my work. Yet today and tomorrow and the next day I must be on my way, because it is impossible for a prophet to be killed outside of Jerusalem. 
Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you. And I tell you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. So first of all, one of the ways the deflection tactic works is that it teaches us to always assume that the Pharisees are the bad guys, that they are only and always there to antagonize Jesus. Even when the text is ambivalent like this one, or the text shows there's a clearly a relationship of respect, if not actual friendship, even when there's evidence that Jesus was actually a Pharisee. Yeah, I know. This isn't to say that there weren't Pharisees who collaborated with Rome or who thought assimilation would keep them safe, but the Pharisees were also the ones tearing Roman war eagles out of the temple and participating in protests and labor strikes against Roman repression. Pharisees were lots of things. Remember what I said before about flattening the story into good guys and bad guys? That doesn't help us to notice how human these stories are, how complicated it is to live under oppressive regimes, and how necessary it is for folks with access to share their insider info with movement leaders. And so with today's reading, there's no reason to think the Pharisees here are trying to rush Jesus off to save their own skin. No, I think they're giving him some good insider info. They're using whatever insider access they have to make sure Jesus knows the scoop, knows what Herod is plotting, so that they can all together decide what to do. And although I usually push back on claiming that white Christians are the Pharisees in the gospel stories, we aren't, we're the Gentiles, that's still actually a good lesson for us, for those of us who have access to dominating power. Contribute to the liberation movement by sharing the insider info you have. Second, the deflection tactic teaches us to assume that when Jesus is lamenting over Jerusalem, what he must mean is Jerusalem represents Jews and Judaism, and or a whole sinful humanity that destroys Jesus rather than Jerusalem as a kind of broad-stroke shorthand for those who hold dominating power and are using it against the people and their prophets. Like how we say, Texas is so transphobic, when what we mean is actually the small group of white Christian power holders. The prophetic critique of the power structure in Jerusalem is not that unusual. We find it in places throughout scripture. However, That critique is almost always directed toward the powerful, while lifting up the suffering of the people under that power, that brood Jesus longs to gather together under their wings, and naming what it will take to build a thriving community for all. So we want to remember here in Jesus' time that the power structure that is doing the killing and the stoning, the execution of John the Baptist by Herod, for example, It's a power structure put in place by Rome to do Rome's bidding, to assure that tribute and the fruits of the people's labor goes to line Rome's coffers and protect Rome's power. 
That power structure includes that fox, Herod, as well as Roman-appointed high-level temple officials, and of course the Roman military and functionaries that run the city. So let's consider that what Jesus means here is all of that, including that fucker Herod who killed my cousin John. All of that is legit to be mad about, to anguish over. The danger of the traditional deflecting power analysis of this text is that it confuses us about who to be mad at, or if we should even be mad at all. And in fact, I think what ends up happening is that this text becomes about posturing ourselves as the good ones. We feel good about ourselves because we're the good Christians who aren't Pharisees or foxes. That deflection actually disconnects us from naming what is actually happening to us and disconnects us both from our righteous anger and from being able to access our grief, our anguish, and especially our ability to grieve collectively. And that grief, that anguish, is really important to our work for collective liberation because it's the grief and anguish that tells us something is deeply wrong. It feels terrible, believe me, but it's part of the compass that guides us. So I want, to ima- I want us to imagine this story with that deflection corrected, that power analysis corrected. So I want us to imagine this little community of Jewish rabble-rousers gathered somewhere on the road to Jerusalem, maybe in a little town or maybe at someone's farm, maybe sitting around a table or under a tree outside the house, taking a break after all that teaching and healing and trekking around the country. And Jesus' Pharisee friends come and tell him in anguish that Herod is going to kill him. And Jesus' heart breaks for himself and his people. He's clear on his purpose. He's going to keep going and He knows the extent to which dominating power will do anything, anything, to keep itself in power. I imagine his voice cracking as he moves his arms like wings. He wants so badly to keep his people safe. And his community gathered there, they lean into each other, brooding tears in their eyes, maybe grieving together. The violence that the system relies on is happy to perpetuate on their own bodies. Maybe Luke's power analysis is off, but the power of this story cannot be contained. It still shines through. The necessity of holding on to each other, of naming dominating power for what it is, of grieving together the violence the system relies on. Because we're still grieving it every damn day. Getting our power analysis right helps us to know we're not alone in that grief, helps us to know how to move to create lasting change, and helps us to know how to hold the complexities of living under empire and to not blame the wrong people for the troubles of the world.
call to action this week, I invite you to do a few things to deepen our collective commitment to fighting anti-Semitism. One is learn more about anti-Semitism and how it functions to uphold white supremacy. We maintain a resource list about countering anti-Semitism where you'll find tons of articles, webinars, books, podcasts, you name it. The link is in the transcript on our website and we'll share it on social media as well. And I'll highlight and link in the transcript two pieces from that list that are really good starting points. One is April Rosenblum's piece, The Past Didn't Go Anywhere, and Jews for Racial and Economic Justice, or Jay Frege's piece, Understanding Antisemitism. Both of those are available online. Jay Frege's webinars with us several years ago about antisemitism really helped me to understand this machinery of deflection that defines how antisemitism functions. Those webinars are also on the resource list, and I invite you to make a contribution to JFredge to support their incredible organizing work. And finally, speak out. When you notice antisemitism happening, say something, especially when it's happening in our churches. I'll warn you that once you understand this deflection tactic, you'll start noticing it everywhere. Liturgies, hymns, everywhere. It can feel overwhelming, but correcting this deflection is part of the work that needs to happen to build a world where everyone thrives and to build a theology that celebrates everyone thriving, not a thriving for some at the expense of others. We're all in this together. Thanks, as always, for joining us from wherever you are on this good earth. We'd love to hear from you all, especially from folks of color and non-Christian folks, by filling out the listener survey on our podcast page at surge.org. And give us a like or rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to our podcast. You can find out uh, more about Surge at surge.org, S-U-R-J dot org. And our podcast lives on SoundCloud. Search on the word is resistance. Transcripts are available as well on our website, which include references, resources, and action links. And we'll be back next week with a resistance word from Sharon Fenema. I want to thank April Rosenblum deeply for our initial conversation and for her thoughts as I worked on this episode. And of course, a huge thanks to our sound editor, Claire Hitchens. Blessings to you in all that you do to resist injustice and in all that you do to build up a new world. Love and liberation, beloveds. Love and liberation. Until next time, I'm Reverend Ann Dunlap. Thank you.